So it's time for our Kids' Corner this morning. And uh, So tell you what, why don't we just kind of hang out here at the rail, because I got kind of a demo I need to give while we're sort of standing up. Will that work? Okay. So going to get angry at me because I said you didn't look like you were a day over 10. Okay. <laughs> so here's my question for us. Let me see if I can find my $5 bill, right? Okay. So anybody want that? Nobody? <laughs> well, all right. I get, oh, yeah. There we go. We got to take her. We got to take her, right? So, all right. So I got a question for you, $5, right? So, but what if I just like pushed it down on the ground? You still want it? You didn't want it in the first place. Sue, do you still want it? All right. Well, how about like if it's down there, what if I like actually brought it back up here and I crumbled it up and then threw it on the ground? You still want it? What if I went out to it and I stomped on it? Still? So, why do we still want it, is my question. What do you think? Because it's money, right? Because it says here, in, if I can unwrinkle it, right? It says that it's worth something, right? We know we can get something for it, right? So, it makes it worth something. But here's the point. No matter what I did to the $5 bill, it didn't lose its value, did it? And so here's the lesson in this, guys. No matter what life hands you, no matter what life does, you don't lose your value either because you're beloved by God. And that's worth far more than $5. And actually, if you took one of my kids' bulletins today, on the back of it, there's an infinity dollar bill with a place on there for you to put your own picture, right? How about that? <laughs> All right. So thank you for participating somewhat in my, <laughs> my experiment today. And let me send you back now and speak with the bigger people. How about that? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You know, probably the most powerful products of our thought life include things like identity, the sense of worth, the meaning of life. These develop as products of how we assimilate and think about the information that we receive in the world through our experiences and teachers and sometimes even pastors, right? Um, and as one would expect, they differ vastly between the believer and the non-believer. And Redemption needs to redeem this process too. Just like our heart needs to change, 
basically being born again is a full body exchange. It's a full body experience. It's our hearts, our minds, our soul, the utter totalness of us, right? Romans 10.14 asks the question, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? Without correct information, our ability to think has nothing to work on. And misinformation and misthought leads to confusion and chaos and unworkable situations away from God, disillusionment. Is there ever anybody that believes that they can proceed without the right information and just sort of luck into good things? You know, and I have kind of a story on this, and this is kind of a confession at the same time. So when I first came to church, when I first came to Christianity, one of the things, and, and, and this is kind of a confession to, I guess I didn't read the fine print of my Bible very deeply, because I thought that one of the things that this would mean is that I would get in good with God, and God would save me from the problems of this world. Well, you know, read a little further on, and you find that you're not going to not be saved from the promises of the world. Not only that, but Jesus promises you that there will be problems in this life, right? So proceeding with the information that I did at first kind of led me to crash into a brick wall, right? So when that happens, and that's bound to happen to us all in our walk at some point, when that happens... We need to modify what we believe so that reality again lines up with how we're thinking, right? So failure to know what God is really like and what his law requires confuses thinking and it closes off the heart to the working of the spirit and then kingdom living. You know, thought again is the gatekeeper of the heart. And without the right thought, people get kept, are kept stuck in their natural ways of thinking, which leads to societal ruin, and it destroys the soul and results in eternal ruin. You know, and this is what Hosea 6 is getting at. When, when God says, my people are utterly destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, and for this reason, Jesus Christ summed up his earthly ministry in prayer on the evening before his death. In John 17, 6, Christ says, I manifest thy name to men thou gavest me. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, I've made them understand who you are, God, what you're really like. What is the mind of the natural man then without divine revelation? And this is what Hosea 6 is actually describing. It's not so much that God works curses into our lives, I think, as it is that those things are natural byproducts of our life without God. So the natural man without God, cannot apply his rational thought to restrain wicked spirits, that is, wicked ideas in his heart. 
then and there wouldn't be a point to it even if he could. They become people that fight to get whatever they want, to do whatever is necessary to get their own way, because without God, there is no heaven. They're, they're susceptible to these wicked ideas, wicked spirits, satanic and political demagoguery, whoever or whatever promises comfort, pleasure, ease, wealth without work, that just draws them in and attracts this kind of person because without God, without heaven, the only way to get a taste of paradise is to experience it here, now, in this life. And this is the idea in the back of their mind that they can't really probably even put their finger on. Remember I said last week, we have these ideas that kind of control our decisions, and we don't often even understand how those ideas work their way out, right? You know, but for us, for the Christian, we know that God is on the throne. We don't need to get our way today or tomorrow or even for a long period. This isn't the end. And we know that God works all things for our good. And this is a vastly different perspective and has a vastly different outworking in the world. So what then is thinking that it should result in such profound differences in outcomes? Thinking is really searching out what must be true. It's what must be true in light of the larger pictures, in light of the given facts and assumptions. Thinking extends information so that we can see the larger picture. It undermines false and misleading ideas and information. Thinking shapes the most important image we've got, and that's our self-image. It, it defines our identity, our self-worth, our meaning in life itself. So regeneration, that is being born again, or coming to this kingdom of eternal life, however we call it, it must necessarily change our thinking. To serve God well, we need to think straight. And as Christians, we're to apply our thinking to and with the word of God, to take it in, to dwell on it, to ponder its meaning, to explore its implications, and to seek the Lord through it. The prospering, actually, of God's cause in the world depends upon our good thinking, for we carry that message around the world. The Gospels are kind of like the news story of the Bible. So the Gospels present new news in their day. And the epistles that follow are kind of like the adjustment required in light of that news. How do we now live given Jesus Christ, given the Lamb of God, given the knowledge of God's love for us? By the way, unlike every other faith, Christianity does not prohibit doubt. It doesn't expect blind faith. It doesn't call us 
to suspend our rational thought, it actually encourages all of those things to explore and know God through his revealed word. The Bible probably does more to refute superstition and encourage rational thought than any other ancient text. How about that? As a required part of discerning the truth, we need to be able to ask these questions. But don't be fooled, then, by the modern questions and the modern twists and turns and mantras out there on this. Science, by no means, has a monopoly on thinking straight. You know, the hymn writer Isaac Watts, uh, Think Joy to the World, or Wondrous Cross, among many others, I'm sure you could probably rattle off several more. But, you know, Watts wasn't a professional hymn writer. He was a scientist. He was Actually, he was a professor of logic and mathematics. And by the way, you can get Watts' work still today. And his writings about these things are just as exquisite as his hymns. He's an amazing guy. Science is not as it's presented. It's not as Neil deGrasse Tyson says when he says, the good thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. Well, not, well, just wait a minute here. Science is not merely a collection of data points and making calculations. It's a set of philosophical assumptions that guide the possible outcomes. Anything outside of those assumptions is then, and therefore, by definition, unscientific. Thus, scientists aren't even permitted to reach certain conclusions, even if the data points in that direction. So let me give you an example. Everyone, almost every scientist, agrees that the universe and life in it looks like it's been designed. So why not then say there must be a designer? Science cannot. It can only say that things appear designed, not that they are designed. But science then needs to go and postulate some naturalistic reason or way in which that happens. They are designed. Don't let modern cultural phrases like these ideas kind of grind you down into this sort of static thinking, you know, just hearing the background noise of our culture instead of the message of the gospel and the epistles and the Bible as a whole. And especially, don't intentionally do that as Psalm 10.4 suggests a sinner crowds God out of his thoughts because he can only think of God as a prisoner thinks of the judge. And in fact, to worship God requires thinking of God how he is, who he is. In fact, I don't think we can help but worship when we think about who and what God is and the things that God has done. And by the way, worship is the single most important and powerful force in this renovation. By contrast, crooked thinking serves hell. 
We either get our view of God right or we revise our view of God in light of evil. Bad thinking leads us to trade the supreme worth that I was talking about with the the kids on the floor here. Bad thinking leads us to trade that supreme worth for often worthlessness. Because we can't judge apart from God. We can't judge even good or evil apart from God, let alone our own self-worth apart from God. Recalling a couple weeks back uh, at at Easter Sunday, you know, Jesus' final word on the cross, tetelestai, Jesus declares victory. You know, I think there's something rather more in that. And it's this, that Jesus himself is satisfied with his decision to die for you. Now, that should give us incredible worth. The God of the universe is satisfied to be a sacrifice for you and me and the world around us and all of its sin. So, but what then do we do with this? You know, we're told that we're his, that we're bought at a price. There's no more Greek or Jew. There's no more slave or free. There's no more man or, or, or male or female. But the world instantly reconfuses this, wants us to group up and separate off by religions or race or sex or whatever. Um, and, and there's no shortage of groups out there that we can identify with. And actually, there's kind of a joke along this line. You know, uh, a man was walking up a bridge and he encountered somebody at the edge of the bridge about to jump off. And he began to talk to the man and try and talk him down. And he said, are, are you a Christian? And, and the man said, yes, I am. And he said, well, so am I. And he said, so are you a Catholic or a Protestant? And he said, well, I'm Protestant. And again, the man said, well, so am I. So what denomination are you? He said, well, I'm Baptist. And he said, well, so am I. And the man said, well, then, so are you Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist? He said, well, Northern. He said, well, so am I. So do you, do you belong to the New England Conference or the Great Lakes Conference? Great Lakes. And he said, well, so do I. And he said, well, so do you ad- adhere to the Charter of 1884 or 1912? The man said, 1912. And the other man said, pushed him off the bridge and said, die, heathen. You know, right? Is this what we are called to do? Are we to be this particular with who we are? And the answer is clearly not. These groups, these categories are dangerous because they offer us what appear to be a better identity or at least a group identity. I don't have to feel so all alone in the world, I belong to this group, right? But that leads to becoming some form or another of a hyphenated Christian, American Christian, conservative Christian, liberal Christian, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christian, you know, black Christian perhaps. 
gay Christian, straight Christian, affirming, you know, whatever we put in front of that hyphen, as soon as we adopt a modifier, we change. See, the job of that modifier is to change the noun behind it. What is it that we would want to change about Christian, really? You know, when I say, if I say I'm a conservative Christian, am I just wrapping the flag around my faith, or what am I doing? And in a lot of ways, when we do this, when we adopt that other identity, no longer just in Christ, we're doing two things. It's almost like putting on another team's jersey and then taking the field to play the game. It confuses everyone. Who knows what side I'm really on? And beyond that, it's really taking this identity and saying, Holy Spirit, this area is off limits. This is who I am. You can't touch it. And I know there may be people that hear this out there and they think, yeah, but Pastor Vaughn, you don't understand. You haven't walked my walk. You don't understand me. Nobody understands me even. I'm alone out here. You don't know how I was mistreated or victimized or abused. Or I've always had this thought or those feelings. I've always been marginalized. And you know what? Yes, you have a story. But Christ has redeemed that story. And we all have that story in one form or another. You're not uh, your group identity, you are your identity in Christ. Recognize this call in our modern culture as a lie from hell. Cause you to miss who and whose you really are and the power that comes with that. You're not an addicted Christian. You're a Christian who struggles with an addiction. You're not a fill-in-the-blank hyphenated Christian. By the way, you might be struggling with a particular sin. Well, we all are. Thankfully, we don't need to be healed of that sin and clean before we come to the church, before even the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, you might think that the Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence in unclean vessels, but he does and he must. He's indwelt me he did at a time when I was an unclean vessel. And it's a good thing for us that he does. Without that indwelling, we would never be able to begin the work of purifying our hearts and soul, the regeneration that we're called to. It would almost be like a teacher that stood up and told his class, once everybody passes the final exam, I'll begin to teach this course. Why would that even make sense? In conclusion, the goal of this concept, the goal of this reformation, this transformation of our mind, is to have God the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, as a constant presence in our mind. We cannot decide to transform our ideas, our images, and our identity by our own efforts.
were transformed into Christ-likeness through making parts of Scripture permanent fixtures of our thought life, permanent ideas that take root, grow, and seed other ideas in our thought life. 